welcome to the Pruleith Culinary Institute podcast. I'm your host, Adela Stieler van der Westeisen. Join me as we explore the fascinating world of food through interviews with chefs, chefs in training, farmers and producers. We will be talking ingredients, techniques, recipes, history, trends, health, sustainability and even the odd bit of politics. But it will all be about food. In this episode, we are talking COVID-19, the coronavirus that has disrupted life as we know it the world over. Joining me to discuss the impact of COVID-19 on the food and tourism industry and some lockdown cooking is chef, food writer and food anthropologist Anna Trapido. Welcome, Anna. Hi. Just to start with, and I think we need to give this conversation some context, the number of infected persons in South Africa are 1,845, with 18 confirmed deaths. Globally, almost 1.5 million people have been infected, and 88,538 deaths have been reported. In China, the origin of the outbreak, life seems to be slowly returning to some form of normality where the three months of lockdown have been lifted. Um, And then in Italy and Spain, there seems to be a declining number of deaths and infections. But at the same time, the U.S. seems to be experiencing um, increasing deaths and infections on a daily basis. So this is more or less the background against which we are having this conversation um, in this episode. For South Africa, Anna, perhaps one of the hottest debates seems to be what is essential. Some economists are asking for the concept to be scrapped because they're saying all business is essential. Why has this been such an issue? You know, essential is such an interesting idea, isn't it? That, you know, beyond the very basics, you know, oxygen, food, water, safety, shelter, healthcare, you know, beyond that, That's what we need to live. Everything else is about, you know, it's an existential concept, isn't it? That what do we really need? That what we need tends to be defined or what we think we need tends to be defined by our kind of cultural context. So, you know, when one looks at what different societies have defined as essential services and essential things that you're allowed to leave the house during lockdown to collect, they're very culturally distinct that in France, for instance, uh, specialist wine shops and specialist cheese shops have been defined as essential, that in Connecticut, gun shops have been defined as essential. In California, marijuana dispensaries have been defined as essential, that, you know, those are clearly you know, very distinct ideas. In in New Zealand, the Easter Bunny and the Tooth Fairy have been um, put onto the essential <laughs> services list. So clearly what we think of as essential or non-essential is a product of our cultural context that I think what's been interesting in South Africa is the sort of the moral slant that's been put on essential and non-essential, that that the prohibition on sales of alcohol and tobacco are, you know, clearly around trying to say what sort of society do we wish we were? How do we want to come out the other side? And those are moral judgments that are not necessarily helpful. You know, in terms of of defining what's essential and what people can leave the house for. You know, people are already afraid. 
that there's a whole range of uncertainties that in such situations you cling to your culture, that you cling to the material manifestations of that culture for comfort. So if you get it wrong, and if in defining essential, what governments do is they manage to alienate people by separating them from their sources of comfort. If you just mm. make people feel that the government is taking away the very things they need to feel safe, there is a potential that what you do is that you alienate to such an extent that people stop following the lockdown rules. If you say to French people, you can't have cheese and wine during the lockdown, then they take that as a, a personal attack on who they are. And they're much more likely to be belligerent and go out and do all sorts of other unsafe things. So mm. really defining what is essential it is about, I suppose it's 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 in that very classic we are what we eat sense, isn't it? That what is essential <laughs> is what will keep us feeling safe in what is objectively an unsafe situation. You've mentioned the sales of alcohol and Biggie Tule, our police minister's wish for his birthday was that alcohol should be outlawed permanently. Um, he certainly was playing for the cameras when making that comment, but it did receive quite a bit of consideration um, from the media and questions of what would indeed happen if this came true. Well, firstly, I think one has to remind Becky Clearly that the the lockdown is not like for him personally, that he's not allowed to create a wish list as to like <laughs> what he would like for himself to come out of this. Um, but, you know, obviously we haven't seen the statistics that there are some very broad outlines as to what's happened to the murder rate, that I haven't seen any mm. breakdowns as to which murders, which sorts of murders have ceased to happen, what sort of murderers are staying at home, um, whether there are more murders happening inside the home and less murders happening outside. You know, I think that, that those figures are at the moment too unclear for us to say anything definitive. That, you know, from my mm -hmm. sense, first of all, at a broader South African level, you know, Alcohol is undoubtedly a huge problem in South Africa, socially, economically, in terms of the kind of healthcare cost that it brings on various levels. But actually, already, when you look at the figures, at least 60% of South Africans define themselves as completely teetotal, that they don't drink at all. So the issue is not that South Africans en masse drink too much. The issue is that that a small proportion of South mm. Africans drink too much. So simply banning alcohol is not really necessarily the issue. Um, you know that already for religious and cultural reasons, large number of South African adults don't drink. It's the ones that do that are the problem. That certainly in our house, what the lockdown has done in terms of alcohol is first we drank the good wine. Then we drank the kind of stored box wine and now we're making ginger beer. So, you know, most recently what we've had is an explosion <laughs> in our pantry because my husband somehow got the formula wrong. <laughs> and <laughs> so we're just like <laughs> no sticky. sticky. Shane <laughs> knew um, it's just a bit <laughs> sticky. That in terms of the cigarette ban, what I've found intriguing is that it's a ban on tobacco products and all mm. the discussion has been around cigarettes. Um, and 
you know, obviously cigarettes is a big issue, but I think if we're going back to that idea that people cling to culture in stressful, uncertain times, what we haven't discussed at all is the banning of other tobacco products, most notably snuff. Now, you know, in lots of traditional Hmm. South African culture, in order to communicate with the ancestors, you know, that, that those channels of communication are opened through snuff. So, I think by, you know, almost incidentally, snuff, you know, because it's a tobacco product is also not available for sale. So we've cut off all channels of access to ancestral wisdom at a point where we could really do with all the wisdom we can get. And, you know, my sense from talking to people who do communicate with ancestors is that most often that wisdom is is at its most you know, helpful when you are dealing with issues that people in the past had dealt with. So, for instance, you know, that that people from previous times have experience of plagues, isolation, quarantines, those kinds of issues that we really don't. We've lived in this kind of very safe, easy world where we assume that it's only, you know, that we all die at 70 with from heart disease. You know, that, that actually, I think that this is a case in which you know, the dead might be able to, the long dead might have all sorts of insights. And it's really stupid to have banned snuff. I don't care one way or the other about people's tobacco (laughs) fixes in terms of cigarettes, but I think that we should make an exception for snuff. And that maybe while we're on the subject, we could make an exception for Commando Brandy that in the Eastern Cape is also a channel of ancestral communication. Um, and, you know, I'm, be- I'm being quite serious. I think that, you know, these are culturally yeah. significant ways that people access, you know, ways of thinking and thought and comfort. And maybe, you know, whether or not one believes that there's a genuine channel, there is certainly you know, an emotional channel. And right now we can't afford to, mm. to be losing our emotional props. Snuff and Commander Brandy. I certainly don't think that government considered this at all. But they have in general been proactive and been doing in general a sterling job to save lives. But the new regulations are confusing. According to a policy brief from the Institute for Poverty, Land and Agrarian Studies, PLAS, we should be very concerned about food production during this time. And what exactly are the major issues here? Look, I think, first of all, one has to say, and compared to other people's governments and leaders around the world, actually, gosh, haven't we done well. Um, And I've been very impressed with the humility that, you know, in that first announcement of the the lockdown, the president said, we're going to make mistakes and we will, you know, correct as we go along. And they've done that, you know, that, that there has been a real... Um, willingness to say, okay, the legislation around hawkers isn't quite working, let's adapt it, you know, let's see how we can modify and change. I think that that's been quite impressive at a leadership level. Um, That what has happened in terms of, you know, that, that both farming and food suppliers are on the list of essential service providers. But Quite often, the way that that's been implemented on the ground has 
revealed a series of assumptions and prejudices that we all carry all of the time that for instance small farmers whether those be you know relatively small farmers within the formal sector or even you know people who herd cattle on communal land or food gardens at township schools or whatever all of those people technically fall within the definition of small farmers and yet the way that it's been implemented on the ground from the police and the army is there have been lots of reports of, you know, people who are attempting to push a wheelbarrow full of spinach in Tembisa from their food garden to the spaza shop on the corner, that that is a supply chain, that nobody is stopping the supermarkets going from the big kind of agribusiness farm to the warehouse in a refrigerated lorry, that that's being understood as a food supply chain between agriculture and and food selling. But when those other methods that, for instance, I know that in the Western Cape, a big issue has been that small West Coast fishing communities, you know, that, that the way that they then get fish, which is a very good source of protein to communities on the Cape Flats, is that there's a man with a bucky who sells fish off the back of the bucky with a snook horn and drives around the town. Those people have been stopped. You know, that's not been recognized as a valid supply chain, that, that the idea that the the police and the army seem to have in their heads is that a farmer is a white guy in a short sleeve shirt with a refrigerated trolley and thousands of hectares of land. So, you know, that's mm. about assumptions we make about who is and who isn't a farmer. And that confusion, I think, has hit small farmers very hard, especially as you know, those small farmers, they don't feed into the supermarket chains. They're not selling to those people. They are selling to, for instance, hawkers and restaurants, both of whom have been prohibited within the terms of the legislation. So if we're not careful, what will happen by default is that our assumptions will result in a situation where, you know, big agriculture and big supermarket chains consolidate their power on the food supply. And we come out the other end with our small farmers and our small food producers, very seriously damaged, if not completely destroyed. And there's actually no reason why that has to happen that, you know, we are somehow assuming that the supermarkets will swoop in and save the day. And they have done a terrific job. And, you know, that that Nobody is questioning that, but we can actually build small suppliers into the solution, you know, that we have to shape, build the shape of the recovery Mm. into the shape of the crisis management. So there is no reason why the small market gardeners, for instance, can't be um, commissioned to be part of the emergency relief supplies, that that doesn't all have to come via the big supermarkets. Um, but at the moment it is, you know, that, that just because we haven't thought it through mm-hmm. and that's why, you know, that, that it's great that we've got a, a leadership that's saying, tell us what's not working and let's try and make it work better. 
Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because this was, would be such a tragedy as there have been recently so many fantastic projects that are exactly aimed at trying to build up these small farmers and community gardens. And, um, you know, we've also as restaurants been involved in some projects trying to get them on board and trying to change the system. And that would perhaps be, yeah, tragic, as um, as we say, if that were to happen. I know that it will sets us back so that we've spent the last 10 years sort of promoting small heritage ingredients and, you know, that those sorts of ways of doing business with small producers who do interesting, delicious things with culturally specific foods, and then just to lose all of that would be awful. Devastating. Devastating, especially for me as a chef, thinking about menu planning. If I am stuck once again only with selections that one can also buy in a supermarket, I I would yeah. be devastated. Um, absolutely. Um, and I'm moving on from food production to those who serve it. The prognosis for our restaurant industry post-COVID-19 globally is not a very right. good one. Before the lockdown there were already some serious restrictions on restaurants and some of them were were really, really fighting hard to stay open and make a last bit of money. What were some of the most impressive innovations that you've witnessed in these last days before lockdown? Look, I think, first of all, you know, all sorts of people tried at, in the last minutes to try and change their business models so that people who restaurants that had previously been a very their model had been that it's people eating in the restaurant were you know mm. attempting to see how they could work with deliveries so that it would be food from a restaurant rather than food in a restaurant and I think that what quite a lot of them realized I'm not wanting to sound too gloomy is that you know while at the beginning there was a lot of enthusiasm and you know focus on trying to see how much those models could be changed that what a lot of people realized is that that it's enormously costly that if your business is set up to do one thing, to suddenly change to try and do another isn't, mm. you know, there's a whole range of costs that you hadn't factored in that, you know, the delivery costs, for instance, that the menus are not necessarily suitable, that restaurant food mm. doesn't necessarily translate all that well into getting into a takeaway container and being driven across town. So, Mm, especially yeah, fine dining I think that, meals. that a lot of what people found was that, you know, there was a kind of energy for trying to do things different, but that all over the world, when you look at fine dining restaurants, a lot of them, even in places where they are still allowed to operate in those ways, have after a week or two decided not to, that it doesn't do the way that they cook any favours. That, the, you know, that, that I think that post-lockdown, what I've been interested in is the degree to which sort of virtual cooking and virtual entertaining has taken off. So, for instance, Studio H mm. in, in Cape Town, although it doesn't matter where they are at this point, I mean, that's one of the great things is to be able to access people all over the place that you couldn't, you didn't used to be able to have dinner with, that you can now have a virtual dinner party with. Mm. They've been running a whole series of virtual dinner parties. <laughs> and because they're already in that space where they, you know, they've always, you know, done things with experiential stuff so that if you were eating fish, you heard the sound of the sea or all of that kind of thing. I've quite enjoyed some of those games, but I think 
you know, it is games to entertain us. It's like listening to, you know, Dolly Parton's also reading stories, you know, those are also entertaining, but I'm not sure that, that mm. any of these things, <laughs> I know that there's lots of discussion about how will we change and be um, different after it. Mm. I don't know that any of these things are lo about long-term changes. They're about entertaining, you know, the lucky, rich and spoiled while the zombie apocalypse takes over. <laughs> what I know from people who are in the delivery space is that they, for instance, Andrea Bergener at the Leopard Food Company, you know, they've always done deliveries. And she says that she thought everybody would be ordering sort of immune boosting healthy things. And she has a bit of a speciality in that zone anyway. She says all they're ordering is chocolate brownies and macaroni cheese, you know, that, that comfort food. Yeah, that there's no sense that people are preparing for a long term future. They're just saying, well, I may as well have a brownie and some more macaroni and cheese sort of last meal thoughts yeah it's sort of that maybe what we should be yeah looking at is you know that website that will give you the um the last meals before execution in texas prisoners that maybe that's where yes. we should be looking for inspiration <laughs> that um yeah yeah probably lots of brownies <laughs> there as well and looking at this impact, we wouldn't be able to say that COVID-19 have ruined a perfect industry in South Africa. Um, our South African hospitality industry already went into this crisis with a compromised right. immune system. Um, apart from the, the economic challenging times that we've been in, we have seen load shedding. There have been less tourist arrivals especially for Cape Town restaurants, a weakening rand, increasing food costs, all of this have made it an incredibly challenging space mm -hmm. to make money in, um, in recent years. How do we come back from this? Yeah, I think, yeah, it is important to recognize how bad the last two years have been, especially in the fine dining space especially mm -hmm. in the Western Cape, for all sorts of people that I do see, you know, absolutely COVID has been the straw that's broken the camel's back. But there have been quite a lot of fine dining chefs who are now crying COVID for their collapsed businesses who were so near the edge anyway. Yeah, I think it's important to recognize that we were in a very serious crisis before that and that part of that you know was probably around you know the fine dining especially western cape people were very focused to the international tourist trade and were very uninterested in mm. locals and you know especially things like brexit that have just you know long before they were in lockdown the English were simply staying at home because they were waiting to see what was going to happen, you know, that there were all sorts of other sources of anxiety. So the world was already an uncertain place um, and that this has simply, I mean, it really has been, you know, an, an enormous blow that we absolutely need government support mm. and for governments to recognise the role of material culture and intangible culture in promoting the kinds of industries like tourism that really create long-term sustainable jobs. Mm. But yeah, that, that we needed that before. What we need is all the things we always needed, only more so.
Yes, yes. There has been quite a bit of criticism after the recent budget speech. Obviously, it was before our, our lockdown. But um, what has been the budget for tourism saying it's not enough to do what we need to do? Do you think that post-lockdown, we might see a, a greater contribution from government? I mean, there are many areas to help, but what can hospitality and tourism expect? My sense is that, that you know, that, that we're going to be in a dire economic situation and there will simply be less money all round. And, you know, that's not just COVID, that those are long-term economic processes that, you know, ratings downgrades are, again, in themselves, simply a manifestation of the decade that came before. You know, that maybe there's a case for, you know, the way that alcoholics say, you know, you have to get to the point where you can really see that you're in crisis before you can start getting better, that maybe we've reached that point. That in terms of societies like ours, I think what will certainly happen is that the, the divide between the rich and the poor will get bigger. And that in terms of restaurants, mm. I mean, this is a very... I'm not even sure if this is a silver lining, this is a, it's a something, is that when you have a few very rich people, you know, those people get more and more opulent that I know that we're having this sort of little kind of moment where, you know, rich people are saying they'll take job cuts to go on paying their workers. I don't know, maybe mm. I'm just being the prophet of doom. I don't think that will go on. I think that Ultimately, what will happen is that the poorer will get poorer and a very small rich will remain rich and get richer. So that what we'll lose is our middle class, which is bad news for bistros. It's not necessarily bad news for fine dining, that maybe what we get is mm -hmm. a few very opulent things happening at the top. Yeah, that that's not a good thing, but it's a thing. And there are many predictions about how COVID-19 will change the world. Everybody seems to be looking into the crystal ball and coming up with a theory. And although everything might not change, how do you think this will change restaurants and dining? Um, you know, I think people often say, oh, we're going to be all different and then we go back to being much the same, you know, that um, mm. I think that humans bounce back enormously quickly into old habits and bad habits. And I'm not sure that it will make a huge difference other than that we will be certainly in the short and medium term in a worldwide economic crisis. And that changes people's behaviors a bit. Um mm. But I don't think it changes them for the better necessarily. So, no, I think we are a nasty species and we'll go on being that way. That, um, I, you know, what's been quite interesting is watching what other creatures have done when humans have been less available. That mm. I saw today that that pandas in zoos have been having sex and having babies in much greater numbers. That, you know, that's because the humans have stopped messing with them. That in mm. our street, you know, I live in the northwest and we have vervet monkeys. So that in our street, the monkeys have just sort of taken over in ways that have been... <laughs> You know, rather charming to watch from my kind of gate of my house. But 
you know, in some ways quite irritating that, that this morning that we were so angry with the monkeys because it's not as though they haven't got the whole street, but they came into our house and stole <laughs> all our bananas. So oh, um, there were only four bananas left and the vervets have had all of them. So we had exploding ginger beer and and the monkeys stole the bananas. Um, yeah. Oh, Talking about wild animals, the outbreak of the virus is currently believed to be a wet market in Wuhan, China, that sells all sorts of exotic delicacies. What I found quite interesting from this is that it led to some controversial discussions around cultural diets, specifically what the Chinese eat. What does this say about cultural and modern diets? Well, look, I was reading up on, you know, the origin story, and that's what it is in the same way that, you know, creation myths are a story, that there's very little evidence that that wet market was the source of the original mutation, that it's just as likely that, you know, the scientists are saying it's just like as likely to have come through bats or that the mutation simply happened within mm. humans. But I think what it does, you know, it's an origin story and origin stories are not necessarily factually true, but they tell us psychological truths. They tell us about who we think we are and our anxieties. And, you know, more than anything, I think right now we need to guard against an origin story is actually about our anxiety about the rise of China and the rise of wealth in China. And, you know, say, are we seeking to look for a way of externalizing the blame? And there are undoubtedly ways that Chinese consumers are engaging with wildlife that are unsettling. Um, but they are not necessarily the cause of this particular pandemic. Mm. And they are a reflection of a broader set of kind of consumerist behaviors that we all have. It would be very comforting to blame um, a single person who ate a pangolin in Wuhan, but actually we've all created this. And that if what we do is examine the way that modern consumerism has engaged with ecological destruction and environmental destruction in a broader way that would be useful but we're not what we're doing is seeking to blame, to blame an individual market and an individual within that market and an individual culture and as long as it's very foreign we can all feel like well i didn't eat the pangolin it's not my yeah. <laughs> you know this is a, a human crisis created by a human behavior on a very broad scale yeah no absolutely we've uh, discussed food shortages earlier on but perhaps the one item that has been unexpectedly low in supply is yeast because apparently everyone in lockdown has turned to baking you just have a look at social media and Everyone's baking. It's bread and specifically banana bread. So that's why I feel for you with the, with the vervet monkeys taking your banana bread because apparently one has to bake banana bread. Yes. Um, but why do we cook in a crisis? <laughs> you know, it's almost a bit like why do we drink tomato juice on a plane, you know, that, you know, nobody drinks it any other time. But suddenly on an aeroplane, you think, oh, must have tomato juice. I think, it, you know, partly it's not necessarily why do we cook? It's why do we panic shop? 
because you know everybody is googling how to make sourdough and yet they're going to the shop and buying instant yeast so you know there's a disconnect there to start with you don't need yeast to make sourdough you make your own um so partly it's that we have this sense that you know buying the things is comforting it's like buying the toilet paper you know that, that it's a relatively cheap way of reassuring yourself that you're doing something i've got a cupboard full of yeast i'll be okay but you know in general you know anxiety baking i think is a millennial tray in a much broader sense that we're now heightening that that baking What's mm. nice about baking is that it's it is essentially applied chemistry that if you measure carefully and you have the right heat it's substrate plus enzyme which is where your yeast comes in plus heat equals predictable result. So, you know, what's the major issue around this crisis will be an increase in mm. hunger, but for people who have homes, electricity, money to spend on yeast, chocolate, I've just made the world's most expensive but most delicious delicious chocolate biscuits, for instance. Mm. You know, that it, it is a it's a solace in, in difficult times and it allows us to feel like we're in control when we can't control anything else. It's been also very fascinating to watch how all of our chefs, especially the fine dining chefs, have now turned to social media to share their hints and tips and they are cooking from their domestic kitchens. Have you been following any of these chefs and seeing what they're getting up to? You know, I'm such a Luddite that the only one I've been following is the one that actively sends his stuff to me, which is Rudy Liebenberg at the mm -hmm. Mount Nelson. So, yeah, I've been watching Rudy, who's been doing some very sort of kind of cute KP um, Easter things. So he made oh, pickled fish delicious. and hot buns. And, you know, but again, that's about, these are very kind of obvious signs of a very specific cultural identity. And that's what we cling to. That I'm not sure that once the crisis is over, I think we'll all go back to having children that wine from mm -hmm. McDonald's. That our, you know, we reach for kind of our cultural cues in a crisis and then we abandon them again when we're feeling mm. safe. I think perhaps one of the best examples that we've seen on the Pre-Leaf Facebook page and, and social media, our chefs are also like all other chefs and, and, and people at home cooking their hearts out at this stage and they've been sharing some of their recipes and the recipe that has had the greatest response has actually been whiskey and ginger soast flakes and the comments of people just remembering the <laughs> the sort of you know heritage and i don't know maybe it's got to do with the fact that there's whiskey and but it was fascinating to see how people are all of a sudden remembering their domestic science classes and you know their mother's recipes and yeah i, I think it may be one of the the most cooked recipes from our site at this stage well i have to say that i Prue Leith came to South Africa about a month ago and you very kindly gave me her new book, which is a vegetarian cooking mm. book. Um, and I made the brioche recipe from it the other day. And I'm definitely going to be doing that again. That, you know, that, that I suppose what one does do is, you know, that it's created a space where there is just a bit more time, even if it's the only the time that you, you would otherwise have spent traveling to and from work. You know, you think, well, I've gained two hours in my day. And, well, why don't I prove brioche dough in that mm. time? You know, mm. 
Um, <laughs> so, yeah, once we go back to real mm. life and we don't have those two hours, I think I will probably not be making brioche very much anymore. So um, despite the fact that it apparently takes 21 days to form a new habit, you don't think that this is going to change really the way that we eat and cook in South Africa? Well, we've formed some very bad <laughs> habits, haven't we? That almost invariably, I don't know any, I mean, I'm sure there are people who have, I don't know, taken this time to become vegans or lose 10 kilograms, but I don't know any of them that um, if we've formed habits, we have formed the sorts of habits that mean that we eat chocolate brownies and sauce clakies. <laughs> um, and, you know, so maybe what we'll do is we will go back to being the sorts of people that die aged 65 with, you know, hearts full of sauce clakies and chocolate brownies. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't know that we've changed very much, that we've just reached for our comforts and you know, good for yeah. us. As long as we are recognizing that there are people who aren't as lucky as us and finding ways to be part of the solution to those people's problems as well. That, for instance, I saw a call the other day that I've contributed to the Abilimi Besikaya people, which is a, a farmer's support organization in the Western Cape, small farmer's support organization. They are running manure runs mm -hmm. because they are, so they are supplying manure and seeds and seedling to pre-existing farmers, small farmers. They're saying, you know, people, you can't learn how to farm in a hurry, that what you want to do is support the people who are already trying to do yes. that. And, you know, what farming does, is you have to have a faith in the future in order to, to farm that um, it does give one a sense that there will be a tomorrow and you know that if I plant now you know I will be able even if what I'm catering for is hunger in the future I am controlling my ability to do that so I think that we need to recognize other people's need to survive into the future and not just sort of like get stuck in a little cocoon of making chocolate biscuits mm. and brioche at mm. home. And, you know, yeah, so it just seems to me that, that if we somehow find ways of factoring in survival for all of us, that that's the only way that this can go on. We can't just get into a great frenzy of, frenzy of banana mm, bread. Absolutely. Um, because... You know, that way lies the zombie apocalypse. Absolutely. And now this has been a fascinating, although sometimes slightly gloomy conversation, but just again sort of touching on how wide food reaches into society and that we're sitting here with a world pandemic and food is playing such a central role to all of this. Um, I think we're probably going to have lots more conversations on this going forward. And um, we might even consider another episode for this podcast, talking food and the outcome. So it is interesting times. And I thank you for joining me for this conversation, highlighting the role of food in our society, especially during a pandemic like this. You have certainly served us quite a bit of food for thought. <laughs> Thanks, Anna. Bye. Thank you. You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast Studios.